I absolutely hate going to the dentist. So if you are in this room and you are a dentist, a dental hygienist, or maybe you're a student going into this profession, uh, I want you to please know that I do not understand why you want to do this. Um, uh, <laughs> growing up, I was always so afraid of going to the dentist. It was the one place I did not ever want to go. I knew that the news about my teeth was never going to be good. Never. I knew that every single time I was going to go, that they were going to tell me that I had what? Cavities. Ugh. I don't even like the word. They would say cavities. Oh, Al Michael, you got 14 cavities in your teeth, man. Every single time. And so when you have cavities, then what comes next uh, is Novocaine shots and drilling into your teeth. And, and then they pour the silver cement either on top of your entire tooth or in a certain place. And uh, there was so much silver in my mouth at one point, I thought about selling my teeth to pay off my student loans. I'm not even joking. Like, that was a real thing. But I did. I was so afraid. And so being fearful of the dentist as a child has led me to being fearful of the dentist even as an adult. And now why was that? Why was it that I always had cavities when I went to the dentist? It's because I didn't take care of my teeth. You see, I knew. Oh, I knew that I was supposed to brush 17 times a day and floss between every tooth to make sure there's no leftovers, and to use mouthwash because it kills bacteria. I knew I was supposed to do those things. As a matter of fact, every time I went to the dentist, they even gave me the tools to do so. I think I had 54 toothbrushes at one point. They did. They gave me the tools. And I had the tools. I knew how to use the tools, but I didn't use the tools. You see, they gave me the tools to be successful, but I did not use them, which resulted in my mouth always needing feelings. And in a similar lot, there was a period of time where I did the same thing with the Word of God. I had the tools. I knew the stories. I'd gone to church every Sunday. My grandfather was the pastor, so I kind of had to be there. But I knew the stories. I could tell you every single book in the Bible. You could ask me any trivia question. I'd probably get it. I had everything. I knew it all. But there was absolutely zero application of that truth to my life. And there's probably some sitting in, you, in here right now who are in that same boat. Or you, you come here every week and you, and you sing these songs and you, you hear these sermons. You probably grew up and your Sunday school teacher taught you everything you needed to know. But there is zero application in your life. And I know for some of you in here, it, it may be that it's on purpose. There's zero application in your life on purpose. And then there are some of you in here who, there might be zero application in your life because you don't know how to apply God's word to your life. And that's where we're going to be today. So in his book, Living by the Book, Howard Hendricks explained how to effectively read, understand, interpret, and apply scripture. And so this is the final sermon in the sermon series, Living by the Book. And, and this morning, we're going to focus on the application of scripture to your life. So we're going to focus on application this morning. Well, what does all this mean for me and what I'm going through right now? Or what do I do with the information that I have? That's where we're going to be. So if you would uh, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119. 
Uh, Psalm 119 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the entire Bible, holding 176 verses. And aren't you in luck? Jerry gave me the green light to preach every single verse this morning. I'm just kidding. He didn't give me that green light. But he's not here, is he? Um, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Jerry, I'm sorry. Um, so, <laughs> so we're going to go through Psalm 119. I'm going to pull out a lot of, a lot of application, a lot of, a lot of rich meat that is, that, is in, that is in this chapter. It is such a good chapter. If you've never read Psalm 119, then you need to know that every single verse, all 176 verses are about the Word of God. Every single one. It's amazing. You read it line by line by line, and you see the psalmist reflecting on God's word, talking about how he needs it to help him be obedient to God, talking about how it helps deliver him from affliction. It's it's amazing to see the psalmist talk about God's word in here. Now, throughout this entire chapter, he uses eight different words to describe God's word. Eight different words. You'll find one of these eight in every single verse. So the first one is law. You'll see law several times in in this chapter. The second one is testimonies. He, He talks several times about testimonies. Then we have ways. So he talks about God's ways in here. And then we have precepts. Then we have statutes. Then we have commandments. And then we have righteous rules. And then we have word. Or sometimes it is translated into promises. It's the same Hebrew word, but our our English translation will have it different. I'll give you time to write these down, but you'll find every single one of these in Psalm 119. Every single one of these. Now, several of these words are similar in meaning, but the psalmist uses these different ways to talk about God's word because there wasn't just one way that God communicated with them. For example, if we look at the word law, we have to remember that it was originally called the law was was the Pentateuch. And the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. And this is important because the Pentateuch explains how God revealed himself in the early days. So this becomes a label to his children. And one of the commentaries that I read this week, uh, it said this, it is called the law because it guides, directs, and instructs in the way of righteousness, makes our path straight, shows what is even and right, and points us onward to peace, truth, and happiness. It is even our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we may be justified through faith, and by it is the knowledge of sin. That's law. Another word used by the psalmist is righteous rules. Now, in the Hebrew, this phrase actually refers to judgment. So these rules are are rules that seek justice. God's judgments are so-called because they proceed from the great judge and his judicial sentence to which all men must submit. And the same commentator said this, they are called judgments because they judge concerning our words and works show the rules by which they should be regulated and cause us to discern what is right and wrong and decide accordingly. Now, I could easily preach every single one of these words to you all day long and we'd be here all day. This is, there's so much meat here. I feel like I'm, I'm barely giving you 
any kind of meat right now to chew on, but it's so rich, I promise. But although, uh, although these words uh, differ in their meaning, we have to understand this, that their impact on our lives should be the same. Why? Because God's word is God's word. And applying God's word brings you close to God himself. Applying God's word brings you close to God himself. Now the psalmist spends 176 verses reflecting on the goodness of God's word. How nourishing it is to their soul. The psalmist says several times how much he delights in it. So today I do well to keep my, my oral hygiene in check, right? I brush when I should. I floss consistently. I use mouthwash. And wouldn't you just know it? My teeth are cleaner. Now when I go to the dentist, they're in shock that I have no cavities. It's crazy. See, the outcome of instruction is only brought about by the obedience to that instruction. The outcome of instruction is only brought about by the obedience to the instruction. And I also want to make clear this morning that I am preaching out of the Old Testament. Now, very recently, a popular pastor came out and said that it is time for us to unhinge the Old Testament from the gospel. And so I'm here to tell you this morning that that is absolutely preposterous. That is an insane thought that we should unhinge the Old Testament from the gospel. Without the Old Testament, we would have absolutely no idea how God would reveal himself in the early days. You see, without the Old Testament, we would have absolutely no idea to know why we would even need salvation to begin with. And all the minor prophets that prophesied uh, Jesus as the Messiah who was eventually going to come would be lost. To say that the Old Testament needs to be unhinged from the gospel is heresy. Period. The Old Testament should do nothing but amplify our love for the gospel. Period. So this morning I'm going to have three truths that, that talk, about, uh, talk about what God's word is uh, to us and then at the very end, I'm going to have four points of application that Howard Hendricks gives in his book about how you apply the Word of God to your life. So the first truth this morning is that God's Word is meant to be obeyed. God's Word is meant to be obeyed. If you'll read with me in verses uh, 1 through 3 of Psalm 119. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You see, this is the positive of someone who, who comes out of being obedient to the word of God. And this is contrasting someone, excuse me, who does not in Psalm 1-1, who says uh, those who, who, who do not walk in the counsel of the wicked or sit in the seat of of scoffers, but blessed is that person whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. And see, one thing that we must observe in this passage is that the, the blameless person is not blameless because they are a good person. You see, they are blameless because they walk in the law of the Lord. These two are not two separate ideas that you can be blameless and not walk in the law of the Lord. So when I think about two things that shouldn't be separated, I think about when I go to a baseball game, the, the one thing that I always have to get at a baseball game is a hot dog. 
I mean, in my mind, they're, 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 there's no separation of the two. I can't go and not have a hot dog. It's un-American. It's also unbiblical. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's not biblical, I promise. You won't find hot dogs in the Bible. Um, so, <laughs> but, but these are two things that I can't separate. These are things that, that I think they have to go together. It wouldn't make sense for them not. And so that's what the psalmist is saying. It, it, it's not two separate ideas that someone who, who is blameless would not be walking with the Lord. No, you are blameless because you are walking with the Lord. That's what he is saying. You see, we must look at the word blessed for a second in this passage. Blessed in the Hebrew, meaning to be happy, to feel joy. Blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. This passage is basically saying that the person who obeys God will be happy or joyful. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up, it wasn't always, I wasn't always the happiest or most joyful kid when, when I had to obey my parents. Sometimes their instruction did not make me happy. But I'm a father now. I'm a father of an eight-month-old. And so I see things a little bit differently. So my kid, Christian, who's, in, who's eight months old now, now crawls at the speed of light, like faster than my eyes can keep up. Like you set him down and then boom, he's gone. Like that's how he is for real. And so there is this one spot in our house. It is right next to our couch. There's right next to our couch, there is a, there's a cord that we, that we have that we charge our baby monitor with. And that's where it is, beside our couch at all times. Now, now please keep in mind that my kid has hundreds of toys scattered throughout the living room floor. All he has to do is turn his head and he'll see 15 of them. That's all he has to do. But there's one spot that he wants to go every time, and guess where that is? Beside the couch. He wants that wire so bad he can't stand it. So he goes over to it when I'm not looking because he's fast as lightning. And he'll get to it and he'll grab the cord and he'll go to put it in his mouth. And so guess what I do? I will take it away from him and I pull him away and I tell him no. And what does he do? Well, he's Bethany's child, so he pitches a fit. I'm just kidding. I love you. <laughs> she is in here right now. I'm just kidding. He pitches a fit because he's my child. All right. uh, but he does, he gets mad. So my, my, my outcome, eventually, if you look down the line, my outcome is to keep my kid happy. And that means, yes, keeping him away from something that's a danger to him. My immediate reaction is to keep my kid safe. Because in the long run, I know that'll make my kid happy. He doesn't understand the actions that I'm doing right now. But he's also not in the hospital because he was electrocuted. So he can pitch a fit all he wants over here playing with his other little toys. Because I didn't let him go over here and endanger himself. And guys, there is times that God's word, don't, it doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't, time, it doesn't make sense sometimes that, that he tells us to do things and, and, and we're like, but this isn't going to make me happy. This isn't for my joy at all. But we have to remember in this scenario, my kid who is a child who is eight months old doesn't understand my actions. Just like we don't understand the actions of an almighty sovereign God who is making choices for you. Period. It may not be understood right now, but later it will. And maybe one day my kid is going to look at me and say, thank you for not letting me chew on that wire. Maybe not, but this is a thankless job. It is. And then he says in verses 4 and 5 here, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways be steadfast in keeping your statutes. So the psalmist even recognizes that God's word is to be obeyed. So his prayer is that his ways be steadfast in keeping those statutes. The word steadfast in the Hebrew means to be established, to have a firm base, so that even in a stormy gale, 
we would not depart from the obedience of God. So Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 7. There are two houses. There's a house uh, that's built on the rock, and there's a house that's built on the sand. And the storm came, the winds blew, and the rains fell, and the floods came on both houses. The house that was on the sand did what? It fell. The house on the rock did not. It stood strong. One had a firm foundation. The other one didn't. Jerry preached on this a couple weeks ago. He says this. Storms do not determine who you are. They reveal who you are. So let me ask you this question. Where does your foundation rest? Is it resting on the word of God? Because the storms are going to come. Dr. D.J. Miller said this. It is a great deal easier to do that which God gives us to do, no matter how hard it is, than to face the responsibilities of not doing it. Man, that punched me in the face this week. See, if obedience brings joy, then what does disobedience bring? The fall. We look at Adam and Eve, and we would like to throw the blame on them. They had a maid living in paradise, all to themselves, no people bothering them. An introvert's heaven, little, little, little bunnies and, and things coming up to them. They pay. It was just the two of them, right? And then one decision changed it all. You see, the lack of obedience in one man rippled throughout all of creation. Why? Because the consequence of disobeying your parents is a week-long grounding. The consequence of disobeying God is of eternal punishment. It's much different. So I plead with those in this room who are not seeking out God's word as the authority in your life that must be obeyed and come to a place of submitting to the holy God who created you. I know it is easy to think that because God isn't going to strike me down this very instant that I can get away with with disobeying him. But listen, there is no story in the Bible where disobeying God was okay. Adam and Eve, Sodom and Gomorrah, Jonah, Pharaoh, when he kept the people of Israel captive in Egypt, the people of Israel all throughout the book of Judges. None of these examples show that disobedience was okay, and that is because God's word is meant to be obeyed. Number two, God's word points you north. You see, there is a moral value in reading and obeying God's word. Many people would say that the Bible is nothing more than a book on moral teaching, And I would say that's incorrect. The Bible is so much more than that, but it definitely has solid moral teaching, right? So God's word and will are established around morality. So if we look in Psalm 119, 9 through 11, it says this, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. See, the psalmist knows that God's word demands to be obeyed, but he also knows that there is a moral value and purity found there. So how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Now listen, uh, by the way, I'm doing a lot of word studies. I'm kind of known on staff as the guy who does a lot of word studies, but I promise you, by the end of the sermon, you're going to be thankful I did my word studies. I promise. It's so rich. But But the Hebrew word for guarding means to keep it or observe 
It is akin to the idea of having someone standing in a watchtower looking over. So watchtowers are necessary to keep something safe. How does someone keep their way pure? By always having a watchful eye on God's word to continue to look at it and guard it. Therein lies the idea that the person be ever watchful for God's word and also guarding what he already has. For then the psalmist says that he seeks God with his whole heart, obeying them. But he has stored God's word in his heart. Now this word stored means to treasure. This is something of value that that you would store it away for safekeeping. What he's saying is that God's words are so priceless and so valuable to him that he will store them, that he will know them, and he will apply them. You see, we think value in, in, in many ways is given by the consumer themselves, right? So have you ever gone by a gas station and looked at the price and been like, you know what, I think I'm just going to walk to work tomorrow, right? Because if you see the gas is $285 and you don't pay $285, you won't get gas. If you go to the grocery store and see milk is $5 a gallon, I'm not going to buy milk, Right? So we determine the value of this. The psalmist here is saying that not only do I long for your word, not only will I obey your word, but I will also store your word deep in my heart. It will become a part of me. It is so priceless to me that I will guard it with all of my being because of the eternal value that it has for me. This value keeps my way pure, and in this case, the seller does give the value. Because if it's not God's word, it's not a, uh, it's not a value. <coughs> if it's not God's word, then it is not a value. Well, how do I know whether the word of God is stored in me? Well, let me ask you this, and I'm guilty of this. Have you ever thought about a passage of scripture or a verse in your mind, and you thought, man, I know that it says something about this in the Bible, but I don't know the whole verse, I can't remember the sentence, and I can't remember where it's found. Has anyone ever done that before? I've done it. Yeah. But that's probably a good indication that the word's not stored in your heart, right? I mean, that's the reality of it. Why would I need to store it in my heart when I can just Google it? I can Google the verse. I do that for occasions when people need it. When I, when I know, hey, there's a verse that's something about this guy, let me Google it real fast, because I know it's in there, and then I'll read it to you. But I have never Googled a passage so that I could memorize it. I can't even tell you the last verse that I Googled. Why? Because it's not stored here. It's not stored right here. Verse 105 of Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Excuse me a second. (coughs) Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now, There are two parts to this verse. Lamp to my feet, and then a light into my what? Light into my path. These are two separate ideas. All right, so you have the idea of light. We'll we'll take the second part of the verse first. So you have the part that says light to my path. Light indicates daylight, like it's daylight outside, and you can see what's outside. Path being the thing that has been laid out in front of me. It's farther out in front of me. I'm not there yet. It's out there. Then the the second part of this is a lamp to my feet. Now, a lamp is something that you hold, but it only lights up a certain area, right? It doesn't doesn't light up the entire thing. It lights up almost directly where you are, what you need to see immediately in front of you. And then to my feet, which is directly below me, which means exactly where I'm standing. 
the implications of this passage is that God's word not only is lighting where I'm standing right now, my feet and where I'm at, but God's word is also illuminating the path that has been laid out in front of me. So there's no point of my life that's not being illuminated by the word of God. Right now where I am and where I'm going, his will for my life has been lit up by his own word. That is what this passage is saying. Guys, God's got you. We are reading this verse together. This isn't, this isn't just some hogwash that Alan Michael has come up with. We're, we're all looking at this verse. We're reading it and we're understanding it together. Excuse me again. <coughs> oh, goodness. All right. We're seeing that God's word is able to light up my steps now in my path where my steps will take me, where God's got me going. Same for you. <clears throat> and lastly, number three, God's word brings salvation. God's word brings salvation. If you turn over to, to verse 153 and 154, it says this. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Thank you so much. <clears throat> Whew. Much better. Good. All right. So 153, 154, look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. This is what he says, that there is no greater reason for applying the word of God than this, and that is that God's word brings salvation. The psalmist says here to look upon my affliction and deliver me, and this prayer is obviously for, for the deliverance from affliction. We, we read that, but then he says, plead my cause and redeem me. The word for plead is to contend. So he's saying, I need you to contend for me, to fight for me. My afflictions have overrun me, and I need someone to stand for me. And your word says that you will. Give me life according to your promise. It is God's word that brings life. Listen, it was, it was God who in the beginning spoke the universe into existence. He was up there with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and he said, you know what? I'm going to create it all. And he didn't lay a seed down. He didn't water anything. He literally just spoke it into existence. And then with his mere words, he looked at it, and he said that it was what? Good. He said it was good. <clears throat> Beyond that, it was God's Ten Commandments that laid the groundwork for what the Israelites knew to be honoring and obeying God. And he was pleased with their obedience when they did, and he was disheartened when they didn't. It was the word of God that the people of Nineveh repented of their sins and they were saved from total annihilation. It was through God's speaking that led the Israelites into the promised land as one by one they defeated their enemies. And it was the word of God that was spoken through Gideon that saved the people of Israel out of the hand of the Midianites in one night. Because the word of God brings salvation. And if we look at John 1 1, we have it on the screen. John 1 1. For a second, I'm going to get some more water because my throat is attacking me. <clears throat> we look at John 1 1 for a second. <clears throat> this is a very popular passage, but I want you to look at this passage. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, what word up here? 
is capitalized like a proper noun. Word, right? Word is. And that's because word is describing Jesus. Now in this passage, we see the word is describing Jesus. John is, is showing us the deity of Jesus Christ himself. Now the Greek word for the word word is logos. If you could have that on the screen. <coughs> Goodness gracious, logos. And I have it on the screen because I want you to see it. I want you to know it. This is important for what happens next. If we look back at Psalm 119, keep this up on the screen. If we look at Psalm 119, we see in verse 154. If you look in your Bibles at 154. Give me life according to your promises. Now the Hebrew word used for promises, and if we remember at that very first list at the beginning, promises is also translated into word in the English. Also translated into word in the English. So you'll have some places in Psalm 119 that say word. You'll have some that say promises. Now the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. So logos is a Greek word. Now, there was at one point that the Old Testament was translated into Greek, and that's known as the Septuagint. All right? So the Hebrew word for promises here is imra. It's imra. Now, when they translated it into Greek... Take a guess at what the Greek word was. Logos. Everybody say logos. This was the word that was translated here. Even then, so many places in the Old Testament that prophesied the coming of the Messiah who would bring salvation, we find here in the book of Psalms. Give me life according to your promise, your word. The life-giving word of God that came to speak in flesh and bones who would speak and calm storms. This is the God-man who spoke a man's name and he rose from the dead. This is the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, hung on a cross for hours to eventually speak his final words that was, It is finished. It is done. The work of salvation promised by the word of God himself brought to the Jew, non-Jew, young, old, rich, and poor. This was the same Jesus who brought salvation to you and to me. If you're sitting in here this morning and you don't know this Jesus, then I plead for you to do so. Because it doesn't just, it's not just, this Jesus isn't just someone we just celebrated Easter and at Christmas because he did some really cool thing and, and that we're just, this is just a group of religious people who come together and celebrate. Now listen, this is what happened. It's that at the beginning when Adam and Eve, when Adam and Eve sinned, there, there was enmity that was brought between man and God because of our sin and it separated, there was a chasm there. And the only way to get to God at this point was for sins to be sacrificed for, to be atoned for. And for years and years and years, it was animals. It was pure, uh, undefiled, innocent animals that they used until at one point Jesus finally came and he said, no more. And so Jesus lived a perfect life. 33 years knowing every single day that he would uh, at some point hang on that cross and die so that you didn't have to, so that I didn't have to. He took our place. 
That's the Jesus I serve. That's why applying his word is so important. See, I was 17 years old. I was 17 years old where I finally got that. I was at a youth, I was at a youth convention in, 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 in Gatlinburg, and <clears throat> I lived a lie all throughout high school. I, uh, was, I was one person over here at church, and then I was one person over here outside of church, and was in this, was in this youth convention, and, and the guy was up there preaching. I can't even fully remember what he was saying, but I remember that it was, it was hitting me. It was hitting me hard right here, right here in my chest, and I felt it. The whole time he was preaching, I was just like, gosh, what are you saying? It's so true. And he said, we're not going to do that thing where everyone bows their heads and you raise your hand, but nobody sees what you did. He said, if you made a decision this morning, then after we pray, then you're going to walk up here to the front of the stage and you're going to make a bold profession of faith. Because if you're going to be bold for Jesus, then you better be bold around a bunch of people who want you to do so. And so after the prayer went up, I was, I was up at that stage. And for the first time, I realized that all the stuff that I had learned in church, all of the times that I, I knew these stories, it all just clicked. And it was the first real moment where I applied God's word to my heart. And it forever changed me. Forever and so I know, I know this morning is about applying the Bible to your life. You probably thought this was going to be an intellectual, this is how you do it, by the book, yada, yada. But I couldn't stand in front of you. It would be irresponsible for me to stand in front of you and not tell you the good news that the Bible has for you, period. So in Hendrick's book, Living by the Book, he gives you four steps of application. Four steps of application. Number one is no. It's to know Scripture. To know the text. Read it. Reread it. Know what it's saying. Know who is saying it. Know who they're saying it to. Make observations. Things that point out things that you may not have seen before, but now you realize. The second part of that is to know yourself. Know your strengths, your weaknesses. You need to know these things. You need to have an inward look at your own life because that leads to the second point of application that Hendricks gives, which is to relate. You need to relate these things to your life. It's important to know your strengths and weaknesses because there's no part of your life that the Word of God doesn't speak to. So you need to know these places so that you can relate to them. Thirdly, it's to meditate. Meditate on them. Continuously think about it. If you got to, put it on, put, write the verse down, put it on your vanity mirror, put it, put it on the dashboard in your car, put it as your wallpaper on your phone. Whatever you got to do to continue to, to learn it, to continue to think on it, that's what you got to do. It's not a one and done thing. It's not we read it, okay, this verse says this, well, I'm prideful, so maybe this speaks to that, and then you move on. That's not how it is. It's continuously meditating on it, continuously remembering it. And then finally, number four is practice. It's practice. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where it's no longer just about what I know, the intellect behind what I'm doing. It's about, no, now you gotta, you gotta do it. Practice it. And he uses practice for a reason. He doesn't just say do it. 
because he, he knows you're not going to be perfect at it, but practice it. And this four-step process will help in applying God's word to your life. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for you. We are such in awe of your goodness to us. And Father, we just ask that this morning that you help us be able to apply uh, your word to our heart. Lord, your word has been given. You have spoken. And then in Hebrews tells us that now you're speaking through your son Jesus. And so, Father, I ask that, that we take your word and we apply it to our heart because it's transforming Father, it brings salvation. It is so powerful. It's in your name we pray. Amen.